All of us are called to give dignity to people who have been shunned and cast out. All of us are called to make space for burning questions that don't fit in polite conversation. And all of us are called to point people to the efficacy, to the freedom of a life set free from shame. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out our website and social media. Now, here's our special guest speaker, Amberly Streetback. Well, Ryan left me in charge, so I'm going to preach twice. <laughs> Y'all are so sweet to me. I'm going to make a girl feel good. Um, so, in thinking of the events of this week, um, what occurred to me most heavily and most frequently is that it is always our call as Christians to be like Jesus. And that didn't go away. The times of crisis and strife and stress and times of fear, our call to be like Jesus stays the same. And I wanted to go back, you know, the uh, Lenten season started with, always starts with the scripture about the temptation of Jesus. And I wanted to go back to that scripture for just a few words of how Jesus responded when times are hard and how we can follow him in that way of responding when times are hard. So if you'll remember, when Jesus is in the desert and he's been fasting for 40 days, the first temptation is when Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread and eat. Now, Jesus was fully human. He was hungry. And he was fully God. He was fully capable of turning those stones into bread. He made the stones in the first place. And the temptation at hand is that the devil comes to him and says, use the power that you have to manipulate the physical world to get what you need. And Jesus doesn't do it. Now, we don't have a story later in Scripture of Jesus turning stones into bread, but we do have a story later in Scripture of Jesus turning a little bread into a lot of bread when somebody else was hungry. It's not that Jesus didn't use his power over the physical world. He didn't use it in a self-serving way. The second temptation is when the devil comes to Jesus and says, throw down yourself from this high place and command the angel armies to protect you. So if the first invitation is to manipulate the physical world to get what you want and need, the second is to manipulate the spiritual world to get what you want and what you need. And Jesus doesn't do it. But do we have accounts and evidence in any other part of Scripture that Jesus uses his power and influence in the spiritual world on behalf of other people? I mean, arguably everything from the incarnation to the ascension, right, and beyond. Jesus uses his power and influence in the spiritual world for other people. And thirdly, the devil comes to Jesus and says, you can have all of these nations to rule. Now, he's not offering him offering him a democratically elected representative of the people kind of influence here. He's offering him a dictatorial position of manipulating people and forcing them to do what he wants them to do. That's how people ruled then. That was the, that's uh, how Jesus speaks of Gentile rulers. And, and the devil says, here, you can be in charge. You can make all these people. And honestly, it's hard sometimes to see why he wouldn't, right? Like, why didn't Jesus just take over? But he didn't. He didn't manipulate people and make them do what he wanted them to do. He continues to invite us and give us an opportunity of our own free will to engage and to say yes to him. And so my prayer for us as we engage, 
as we continue to, in times of heightened stress and heightened anxiety, seek to be like Jesus. Now, I don't have absolute authority over the physical world. I can't turn stones into bread. But I have some authority and influence in the physical world. I can make bread. I mean, kind of, badly. You don't want my bread. I can buy bread. (laughs) I have the capacity to obtain bread. Am I gonna spend that entirely on myself or am I gonna use it to serve other people? I don't have absolute authority the way that Jesus does in the spiritual realm, but I have some influence and authority in the spiritual realm. I can pray for people, I can point them to Jesus, and am I gonna use the influence that I have in the spiritual world just for myself, or am I gonna use it to serve other people too? And I absolutely have the capacity to be manipulative and to decide that I know best what everybody else should do and to try and make them do it and get really mad when they don't, just ask my family. But I also have the capacity to not be manipulative. I also have the capacity to reserve and to honor people's choice and to surrender my frustrations and my anger when other people won't do exactly what I want them to do the way that Jesus did. Our call to be Christ-like didn't go away. Um, And I pray that um, in these coming days that the church looks really different than the world around us again. And I am honored to be a part of a congregation that shows me these things regularly. I know that this is possible because it says so in scripture, and I know that this is possible because I see it in your lives, and I'm grateful that you're showing me how to be like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for coming to be with us. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way to answer the temptations that we face. For the ways that those temptations are heightened in our lives right now, Father, I pray that you come and give us grace to respond with kindness and care. That we would be able to use the capacities you have given us to love and to serve others the way that you did. And to continue to be wise and faithful and peaceful people who follow you. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So Ryan invited me to join him in the sermon series that we're in for the uh, season of Lent. And we're following a theme through the scriptures of the sufficiency of Jesus. Um, I didn't say this in first service, but y'all will forgive me if I told you that I almost changed the title of the sermon from the sufficiency of Jesus to, is Jesus really sufficient or do I need more toilet paper? We are talking about the sufficiency of Jesus. And he, he, Ryan talked to us about um, how in the temptation of Jesus we see that Jesus is sufficient where Adam was insufficient. That Jesus was successful in meeting the temptations of the devil in the way that Adam wasn't and showed us that there is a way to do that. Um, last week we visited the story of Nicodemus. And Ryan reminded us that Jesus is sufficient for our burning conversations for the things that well up in us that we don't really have social convention and time and space to talk about because we're all supposed to say, fine, how are you? But that Jesus is sufficient for our burning conversations. And this week we get to look at the story of uh, when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, otherwise known as the woman at the well. And it is, uh, (laughs) it's a long story, and it's kind of a complicated story with lots of sidebars that are hard to describe. But in case this is your first time encountering this narrative, I'm gonna walk us through it 
Um, you can follow along in scripture, sort of, but I'm gonna skip some of it for the sake of time. I tried to read it last night even. It, took, it's like, it takes like seven and a half minutes just to read the story. So we're gonna walk through it. I'm gonna skip a few, a few places for the sake of clarity and time. So Jesus was uh, leaving Judea and he went to Galilee. In order to do so, he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Sychar where he rested at a place called Jacob's Well. While Jesus was resting, the rest of his disciples went into town to buy food. And from town came a woman to draw water from the well at about noon. And so when she came to draw the water, Jesus said, Will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift that God, of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? But Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I gave him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. Well, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And I'm gonna skip this part because it's rather confusing to explain the historical context, but let's just say for the sake of our purposes today that she goes on to take this opportunity to ask him one of her burning questions. And he answers. And then the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and, and when he comes, he will explain everything, because maybe she's still a little confused. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So then the disciples come up, and they were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Believing her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then Jesus has another conversation with his disciples, which we are also going to skip because it's a confusing sidebar for today. So skipping down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. It's a great story. This is a great encounter. And we'll get back to it and unpack it in a little bit. But first I want to tell you another story. This one's much shorter, I promise. It's only two sentences long. Okay? So um, the first sentence of this story goes like this. There was a woman in a 
gorgeous white gown and a man in a tuxedo. Somebody tell me where we're at. Yeah, and we're looking at the bride and the groom, right? You know this story. You know how it's supposed to go. You've got all these pictures in your head, probably set in this room, maybe. Okay, but the second story, the second sentence of this story goes like this. Down the aisle came of the grocery store, (laughs) down the aisle of the grocery store came the man in a tuxedo to meet his waiting bride who stood holding a cake while their parents waited in the car out front. That is not how you expected the rest of the story to go, right? I mean, there are some familiar elements, right? There's some things that are stirring some familiarity, like, okay, white gown, tuxedo, this we get. There's supposed to be an aisle, and someone's supposed to walk down it, but it's not supposed to be an aisle of a grocery store, and it's usually not the tuxedo walking down the aisle. I'm very confused. There's cake. (laughs) You forgot to get toilet paper. Amen. Everything's weird this week, right? We're all off script. There's cake at a wedding, but the bride's usually not holding it. There's usually parents at a wedding. They're usually not waiting in the car. Everything is kind of going wrong. And that is how shocking this story would have been to a first century audience, right? Jesus is way off script here. Because we have some familiar characters. We have Jewish man, Samaritan woman. Everybody knows how this is supposed to go. And this isn't it. If a Jewish man encountered a Samaritan woman, what we would have expected first and foremost is just indifference. Just ignore her completely. Um, possibly there would have been disdain. He certainly would, have po- would not have politely asked for a drink of water. Possibly he would have condescendingly demanded a drink of water. Probably he would have ignored her entirely. And Jesus is off script. He asks her for a drink of water. This leads to a conversation. Now, we've never, we're never told in the story that Jesus actually drank the water. I don't think he asked for the water because he was thirsty. I think he asked for the water to engage her in a conversation. And he talks to her. He talks to her in a way that maybe no one ever had. He's a man, she's a woman, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan, and what we find out is he is righteous and holy, and she is absolutely not. She's a moral pariah, and yet Jesus engages her in a conversation. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Now, the woman we find out is not doing what she's supposed to do either. She, we find out, has had five husbands and is living with the sixth guy, And that is not what women are supposed to do. But I want to pause right here and clarify something. There were, in Jewish and Samaritan thinking, there were two theories of divorce, two sort of philosophies about divorce during this time. Um, I can't pronounce the Hebrew names of the philosophers, but you can still read their stuff today. There was one philosopher, one theologian, who said that Jewish people are only allowed to issue, Jewish men, Women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives. And Jewish husbands are allowed to divorce their wives. Moses allows for this certificate of divorce thing. If and only if she commits adultery, that's it. That's the only case. It has to be extreme. That is the only reason that provision is in there. If she is caught in adultery, then you can issue her a certificate of divorce. And it's possible that that is the story of the woman at the well. It's possible that's who we're dealing with. It might be a woman who cheated on her previous husband with the next one, 
five times over, that she's made a long string of terrible choices that has landed her life in a really awkward and uncomfortable place. Maybe that's one option. The other school of divorce, though, said a man can issue his wife a certificate of divorce for any reason. There's actually an ancient document where the guy said, if she burns dinner, send her away. Any reason at all. And remember, this is a culture where divorce is often a death sentence. There's no get an education. There's no go get a job. There's no go back home to your family because that would have been dishonorable to your father's household. There was nowhere to go. Your husband was your lifeline, and divorce was often a death sentence for women who were just sent away. So it's possible that this woman just got shunted around, traded like property between cruel men, and she was just trying to stay alive, and she's in a really hard place through no fault of her own or some mix in between. What's interesting to me is neither Jesus in his conversation nor John in the telling of his gospel thought that that was an important distinction to make. But either way, whether she got there through her own fault or through the fault of other people, this woman is a pariah. This woman is an outcast. She would have been shunned and rejected. And she is absolutely revolving her life around shame. She is living and walking primarily in shame. So how do we know this? Well, we get a few clues in the story. We can surmise it from the historical context of how people would have viewed a five-time divorcee who was currently living with somebody she wasn't married to. But in the text itself today, we get a few clues. The first clue is that she was there to draw water at noon. Now, drawing water was the work of women in these days. They would all get up early, and in the cool of the day, before it got hot and before you got to work, you would go get enough water that your family needed for all of the chores of the day. She's not there in the cool of the day. She's not making this trek with all the other women of her village who came to this water source. She came alone at noon in the heat of the day. Because when you are living in shame, and ask me how I know, no, don't ask me right now, ask me later how I know what it's like to revolve your life around shame. What I know is that you avoid the people who know. You know that whatever it is in your mind, the one thing you're like, I'll be okay as long as nobody finds out that that thing, if you're living in shame about that thing, you avoid the people who know. You go get water at noon. Because sometimes you don't want to answer the awkward questions, or sometimes you don't want to face the awkwardness of the fact that nobody even bothers to ask the questions. You just have to walk with the elephant in the room. And maybe you go to the grocery store at a different time, or you go to the grocery store across town, or maybe you go to the grocery store in another town. <laughs> you avoid the people who know. And you lie to the people who don't know. Or maybe you tell half-truths. Um, so when Jesus said, first go and get your husband, she said, I don't have a husband. And in that moment, she is hoping, hoping that he'll assume that she's a widow. That was the only honorable way to be a woman in this society that did not have a husband. And so she's just hoping that he'll just assume she's a widow and they can move on. <laughs> And this 
is how you revolve your life around shame. You avoid the people who know, and you sort of lie to the people who don't know, and you constantly are hoping that those two groups of people never meet. It's exhausting. I can tell you from a very real and visceral experience that it is an exhausting way to live. It's isolating, and it just piles hurt on top of hurt. But what we can see in this encounter with Jesus is that Jesus is sufficient to set us free from shame. Jesus is sufficient to set us free from shame. Because look what happens. Jesus engages this woman in a conversation that acknowledges the very worst part of her story and he talked to her anyway. He just named the elephant in the room, put it right there on the table and then he didn't run away and he didn't react in anger or disdain or rejection. There's not even a a reprove. There's no go and sin no more in this passage. He just says it's okay that you can really be here, all of you. He acknowledges her life, her story, her struggle, and he makes space for her burning questions. I mean, if the whole point was to get to this bit where he says, I am the Messiah, he didn't just lead with that. He didn't just start off and go, hello, my name is Jesus, and I am here to be the savior of the world. (laughs) He engaged her in a conversation that gave dignity to her life and invited her to a conversation where she got to tell him first that she's really ready for a savior. And he said, here I am. And then watch what happens. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. We just reversed all three of those shame behaviors that I listed. Instead of avoiding the people who knew, she ran right back into the town full of people she had been avoiding. And she brought up the very subject she'd been not talking about for years. (laughs) And instead of hoping that the people who knew didn't meet the people who don't know, she was ready to get an introduction. (laughs) She said, come see. Come see this man who told me everything that I ever did. The very source of shame that kept her paralyzed and isolated and alone became the exact vehicle for her to point to Jesus. And the fruit of this was not just in her life. And I can tell you from experience, the fruit of this is not just in my life. Being set free from shame isn't just about making me feel better, although that was a mercy. It begins to spill out. And there are ripple effects. When we're set free from our shame, look what happened in her town. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. I feel like this is probably like Sermon on the Mount Part 2 that didn't get written down. I'm kind of sad that we don't get to know. But he got to stay with them for two days and address their burning questions. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're like the woman 
still going to the well at noon. Maybe you're like the woman telling half-truths to people who don't know yet and avoiding the people who do. Maybe your life is still encircled in shame. And this is a chance for you to know and to hear that Jesus is sufficient to set you free from shame. He's not shocked and appalled, not even a little bit surprised, he already knows. And Jesus is sufficient to set you free that you no longer have to expend all of the energy you're expending right now to make sure nobody finds out. Jesus is sufficient to set you free from shame. Maybe, maybe we're um, more like the people of the town. And to me, that left us with a couple of invitations this morning. One of them is to let people around us change. I live in a small town too. This is hard. I really, we don't get to know this part of the story, but I really, really hope that the next morning this woman went and got water in the morning instead of at noon. And if she didn't want to, I really hope somebody asked her to. So maybe part of our journey to trusting Jesus more is to let somebody else change. The other thing that I see in this story, and I really like this moment of kindness, the very last verse. The townspeople said, to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And I wonder if you can think of somebody whose life and testimony and influence have pointed you to Jesus. And have you ever told him? I really love that that moment of kindness is recorded in scripture. It doesn't really further the story. It just tells us that there was a whole town full of people who took the time to say to somebody, I know Jesus better because of you. And I see that what you did was costly and it made a difference in my life. Because all of us are called to be more like Jesus. All of us are continually called to become more like somebody who would ask for a drink of water, not because we needed a drink of water, but to start a conversation. All of us are called to give dignity to people who have been shunned and cast out. All of us are called to make space for burning questions that don't fit in polite conversation. And all of us are called to point people to the efficacy, to the freedom of a life set free from shame. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are grateful to you. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in and among us. Father, I pray that any person in here who needs to know your sufficiency to set them free from shame, that as we worship on our way out of the door today, that we would encounter your Holy Spirit the way the woman encountered Jesus, that we would encounter you and meet with you and say yes to you in a way that sets us free from a life lived according to shame. I pray that you would also give us the courage, Lord God, to let people change and to thank the people who have showed us and pointed us in the way toward you. Father, give us the grace to become ever more like you, to invite freedom 
instead of continued isolation in the people around us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.